0: Good morning to everyone listening. My name is Eliana We'll Welcome to the sixth episode of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we explore the intersection between economics, politics, and everyday life. We try to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global political economic events that schools often neglect to teach fully, despite their relevance to our lives. Today's topic, International Climate Change Policy and COP26, with an emphasis on energy innovation, is arguably the most important issue facing our generation and those that will come after us. We have a distinguished guest, uniquely educated on this topic, here to aid our understanding. But first, here's some background. So, what is climate change and what are its impacts? Climate change is a direct result of industrialization and the subsequent increase in the burning of fossil fuels. When fossil fuels are burned, they release energy and greenhouse gases. This energy is used to provide energy for almost everything that the developed world uses, Cars, planes, plastic, etc. However, greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide and methane, accumulate in the atmosphere, trapping the sun's heat and increasing the planet's surface temperatures. Already, the average temperature in 2020 was 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the 1968 2005 average. If our consumption of fossil fuels remains unchecked, the Earth will warm by several degrees within the next century the results will be catastrophic, with negative economic and political implications across the globe. In general, climate change will increase the intensity and rate of weather events and natural phenomena, whether that be hurricanes, droughts, heat waves, or the infamous rising and warming sea levels due to melting Arctic ice and the effect of absorbing 90% of the heat of fossil fuel emissions. The specific effects of climate change vary by region and a country's capacity to protect itself against these dangerous consequences. With regards to flora and fauna, climate change poses an enormous threat to wildlife across the globe because it alters ecosystems, which are intricate and fragile. Perhaps most importantly, human lives are also at risk, with estimates placing 1 billion people at risk of water shortages or losing their homes due to rising sea levels, melting ice caps, and increased rain rather than snow. Coastal communities throughout the world are facing this issue, particularly those that live on islands. Rising sea levels will cause a refugee crisis that will threaten national security for many countries and put a strain on foreign relations. Global food production will also be severely impacted, as arid regions such as ours in Southern California will become even drier. Unchecked, climate change will increase poverty and contribute to political instability, especially when livelihoods, food supplies, and survival itself are threatened. The global climate science community has set an average temperature increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius as the target, lest climate change become completely unmanageable. So, what are the biggest state contributors to fossil fuels, and what UN resolutions have already been passed? Developed countries and their multinational corporations are the biggest contributors to climate change. Unfortunately, developing countries are the most affected by climate change. It is these same countries that also want the opportunity to industrialize and grow their economies, which presently require the use of fossil fuels. The biggest emitters of fossil fuels are China, the European Union, the U.S., and India. Due to a lack of coordination between developed-industrialized countries and the developing-pre-industrialized countries, there has been a lack of global resolutions put forth by the UN or other international organizations that address climate change, despite its time-sensitive nature. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed by 154 countries in 1992 and was the first initiative of its scale that focused on the climate change issue. Its primary objective was to quote-unquote stabilize atmospheric greenhouse gas levels at a safe level. But because the plan included no mandatory action, it was largely unsuccessful. The next large global plan came in 1997 and was signed by 150 countries. The Kyoto Protocol targeted developed countries, which at the time did not include China or India, asking them to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The United States Congress never ratified the agreement and critics argued that because the two biggest emitters, China and India, were not part of the protocol, it would be ineffective. Eventually, the Paris Accord, signed in 2015 at the 21st Conference of the Parties, known as COP21, replaced the Kyoto Protocol. The Paris Accords were signed by 196 nations, including the U.S., China, the EU, and India. The agreement calls on countries to prevent the global average temperatures from rising above the magic 1.5 degrees Celsius level. However, like all previous global climate agreements, the Paris Accords are non-binding. So, what are the biggest sources of greenhouse gases? According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, most of the greenhouse gas emissions from human activities within the U.S. result from the burning of fossil fuels for transportation, electricity production, and industry. Data was collected from 2019. Globally, most greenhouse gas emissions in 2013 came from electricity and heat protection, transportation, and agriculture, according to the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. So, just recently we had our 26th climate conference in Glasgow, which was from October 31st to November 12th. Various agreements and Resolutions came out of this climate conference, beginning with the Glasgow Climate Pact. The first UN agreement to acknowledge, however minimally, the role of fossil fuels and coal in the climate crisis, which was agreed upon by all 197 countries present. It requires countries to show up to next year's COP27 in Egypt with new plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions. The Paris Agreement had required updated plans by 2025. In addition, 141 countries, quote, pledged to halt and reverse deforestation and land degradation by 2030, according to the Council of Foreign Relations. The signatories, which included Brazil, home of the Amazon rainforest, control more than 90% of the world's forests. The Global Methane Pledge, which aims to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030, was also introduced and agreed upon by over 100 countries. Steps to phase out coal were agreed upon as well by 23 countries, and some major international banks agreed as well. Notably, just last week, the U.S. and China pledged to increase climate cooperation and battle climate change together, while India announced plans to achieve net zero emissions by 2070. Here with us today is Mr. Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation an energy and environmental policy firm that focuses on research and analysis. Mr. Harvey is a graduate of Stanford University and has BS and MS degrees in engineering, specializing in energy planning. Mr. Harvey spent 11 years as the founder and CEO of the Energy Foundation and helped found the Indian Sustainable Climate Foundation, Energy Foundation China, and the European Climate Foundation, he was also the Environment program director of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation from 2002 to 2008. Mr. Harvey was also a member of-, of energy panels created by President Bush and President Clinton, as well as a recipient of the Heinz Award for the Environment in 2016, the UN's Clean Air and Climate Change Award in 2018, and the California Air Resources Boards, Hagan Smith Clean Air Award in 2019. He is also the author of two books and numerous articles. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Harvey.
1: Delighted, and thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. So what led you to start Energy Innovation and become so involved in the fight against climate change?
1: Well, I guess I've been involved in this fight for 30 years now. But one of the things that I was worried about is in the climate change solutions business, there are hundreds of offerings, but they're not all equal. There are some that are incredibly important and some that are essentially symbolic. And unless we know the difference, and I mean we as a a body of citizens as well as decision makers, unless we know the difference between the trivial and the crucial, we will expend energy on things that don't make that much of a difference. So that's the goal of energy innovation, to identify the most important decisions and argue uh, with data on how to solve them. Got it.
0: Thank you. So Mr. Harvey, what is your take on the agreements that came out of COP26? Is there anything that you believe is particularly important that was achieved this year when compared to previous conferences?
1: It's a great question. The COP process is complicated, uh, has thousands and thousands of actors, has almost 200 countries involved, and is not itself legally binding. So what comes out of the COP process depends significantly on what follows it as well as what happens during the two week long meeting. One thing I'm very pleased with and excited about is China, while it did not tighten the formal goals in the COP process, it issued something called a one plus N policy, which is an incredibly detailed list of actions the country can take to reduce CO2 emissions sector by sector. Now it has to be turned into reality. There's a lot of work ahead for for China and Chinese experts, but the very fact that they laid out such a detailed menu is a great start.
0: Got it, thank you. So China is very interesting because of its relatively speedy transition from developing country to an economic superpower. Much of its growth has relied on fossil fuels like coal, and it obviously wants to continue to grow. However, due to its large population, it will likely be proportionately affected by climate change, which is a threat that it can't ignore. And as a country that is not a major supplier of oil or gas, what path do you see China taking in the coming decades?
1: So China is the world's greatest force multiplier, you might say. And when China takes a subject seriously, they transform it. So great examples are their dramatic reduction in the cost of solar panels or onshore wind or LEDs or electric vehicles or batteries. There's this phenomenon called the China price. When China gets serious about making something, they drive the price way down down a cost curve or down a learning curve. Right now, China is on the horns of a dilemma. They have way too much coal They are The country is run by technologically sophisticated leaders and they understand climate change. There's no debate about whether it's real or not, but what they do about it is more complicated. I think what has to happen and indeed what will happen is a fourfold expansion of renewable energy in the next 10 years. And that will allow them to shut down the dirtiest of their coal fleet. That has to continue beyond the next 10 years. But I always look at what happens in the next 10 years to decide whether a country's serious about transformation or not. So renewables, intensive deployment at scale.
0: Got it. Thank you. So how can countries cost effectively incorporate clean energy into their economies?
1: One of the important questions is how you design your public standards or regulations. So do we have a law or regulation that mandates that utilities go to 80% clean energy by 2030? That's a good way to test whether somebody's serious in this country or not. There are dozens of utilities who have made exactly that commitment, but ironically, their public policy regulatory agencies are lagging behind the utilities. It's usually the other way around. I'm a great believer in public standards. A really good building code means that every building built from here on is close to carbon neutral. It produces at or nearly as much energy as it consumes over the course of a year. A really strong electrification policy will accelerate the transformation of our fleet. Requirements by utilities to get an increasing fraction of their electrons from solar and wind and offshore wind will transform those industries. So in each sector, there's a small number of policies that make a huge difference. And when those policies are ambitious, they will drive radical change or rapid change, I should say. When those standards are lagging, then they're an anchor on the kind of change we need.
0: Got it. So how do we get to those standards? What is preventing the transition away from fossil fuels? Is it cost or a lack of existing infrastructure or a lack of political will?
1: I would say the biggest problem today is incumbency. So right now, solar is the cheapest source of electricity on planet earth and wind is second. And yet we're building thousands of miles of natural gas pipelines that we don't need and we're not going to need in a low carbon world. In a low carbon world, those pipelines are stranded investments. They will never be repaid. What happens however, is that because these are political processes, incumbent actors, typically owners of coal mines or gas gas pipelines or gas wells, Or old-fashioned power plants use their political might to slow the processes down. They get in the way of permitting, they mess up the market rules, they create bizarre requirements for electric, electric plants and so forth. In order to overcome incumbency, you need better pricing, which we've now got. You need better technology, which we've now got, but you also need courageous political leaders who are willing to say to their utilities, Friends, it's a new day. You're going to move to renewables at a rapid pace. And your job now is to manage that transition incredibly efficiently through system optimization rather than through old fashioned dispatch. And they have to stick to it. When those standards are set, when you overcome the incumbent actors with new technologies, you get practical revolutions. We've seen it in non-regulated spaces like computers and IT. Now we need to see it in regulated spaces like the grid.
0: Right, thank you. So as I'm sure you agree, the general consensus seems to be that the world needs to transition from dirty fossil fuels to clean energy sources as soon as possible. So how is this transition going to happen? How are we going to go from gas and oil to clean energy like wind and solar? I know you touched on this a little bit, but can you give us more of a timeline for when you think this will happen?
1: Yeah. You know things start slow and then they pick up speed. And so solar, I put in my first solar system 40 years ago. It was very expensive and it wasn't very good. That's just back when I was doing uh, design and build of homes. Uh, Today it's required by law that every new residence in California have a solar system on the roof. Uh, And the acceleration happened most especially when solar crossed the price threshold. So it was cheaper than other sources of electricity. If you have price as a headwind, it's hard to have a transition. If you have price as a tailwind, it's fairly easy. There's tipping points. I would say we are past the tipping point on new electricity, and we're getting past the tipping point on old electricity. 75% of the coal-fired power plants in America are cheaper to shut down than they are to operate. Brand-new solar farms are cheaper than just the marginal cost, just the operating cost of existing coal. So that tipping point's well underway. The electric vehicle tipping point, which is the next most important, is coming. It's not there, except in some markets. In uh, Norway, for example, more than sixty percent of all new cars sold are electric cars. But Norway's not as big a market, say, as the United States or China. I think China will drive the electric vehicle tipping point, and I think they will do it by twenty twenty-five or so. Uh, it'll be helped with U.S. regulations and U.S. companies. I'm heartened by uh, Volkswagen's commitments. They're they're Quite incredible. Uh, They had a corporate epiphany on the heels of their exhaust tailpipe standards that they had to advance in the world by going clean. And they are making a fundamental transformation. They're the second largest car company in the world. It's It's a fantastic sign of another tipping point.
0: Thank you. So natural gas is often referred to as a transitional fuel. What makes natural gas different from oil and coal?
1: Well, it's a misnomer to call it a transitional fuel unless you wanna transition from fossil to fossil, which doesn't sound like such a good deal. At the burner tip, gas emits about half as much carbon as coal, which seems like a pretty good deal, half off. And it looks clean and it doesn't have the conventional pollutants or all the conventional pollutants that coal does. But leaked natural gas is an incredibly potent greenhouse forcer. And so if natural gas system, all the way from drilling the well fracking the well, extracting the gas, compressing the gas, transporting the gas, distributing the gas and burning the gas. If anywhere in that process you have say 3% leak, you're back to the same climate impact as you would would be with burning coal. And I can almost guarantee you that in most cases you're gonna have more than 3% leak. So gas is clean looking coal. It's fossil gas. It's not a transition fuel. Gas should be used increasingly only in highly specialized instances where it's required. So some chemical processes require natural gas. Creating fertilizer requires natural gas. Balancing the electric grid can be done with natural gas power plants operating 100 hours a year instead of 5,000 hours a year. So gas has a specialized role in the transition, but it's not what most people think of where you just do a massive, massive conversion from coal to gas. That's a massive, massive conversion from bad to bad.
0: Got it. Thank you, that's very interesting. So what energy source, if there is one, do you think should serve as the bridge between fossil fuels and cleaner energy?
1: Electricity is the closest thing to magic that we have in that realm. There's a suite of clean, energy, clean electricity sources ranging from existing nuclear and existing hydro to geothermal, possibly some kinds of biomass, but emphatically and especially solar and wind. Uh, which already constitute, I think last year it was 90% of new electricity installations or renewables. Now we have to go after the existing fossil with clean electricity. Once you have surplus, low cost, clean electricity, you've enabled electric vehicles, you've enabled heat pumps to drive electric buildings, and you've enabled electric industry. So the shorthand is to say, clean up your electricity and then electrify everything. That's the transition.
0: Got it. Thank you. So I know that you mentioned nuclear power. And what role, if any, do you think that nuclear power should play and will play in the clean energy transition?
1: So it's useful to break nuclear power down into existing power plants and future power plants. There are just right around 400 existing nuclear power plants around the world currently operating. They're getting old. Most of them were built in the 70s or the 80s. And when nuclear power plants get old, they get brittle and they get very expensive to maintain. The consequence of that is nuclear power is slowly fading out of existence around the world. Plants are being shut down because it's cost too much to fix them. You have to send robots in to fix them because everything inside them is radioactive. Right. So existing nuclear is a question of managing an elegant shutdown, going as long as possible consonant with safety. Then there's the question of new nuclear power. And there are a bunch of interesting ideas on the boards. But for nuclear power to play a big role in the clean energy future, it has to meet the following conditions. It has to be reasonably priced. Right now, nuclear costs about 10 times as much as solar. That's a big gap to close. It has to not contribute to the proliferation of nuclear bombs. It has to find safe siting. There has to be a way to dispose of nuclear waste. And ideally, it should be modular so you can put it in in smaller pieces and at lower costs. There is no nuclear power plant in the world that meets those criteria now. That doesn't mean it's not possible. And I would definitely support more R&D, more research and development on on the question. But to call nuclear a significant part of the equation when it has not solved those problems is to get out ahead of oneself.
0: Interesting, thank you. So let's look at some of the economic and political challenges of transitioning. Many developing countries have argued that they deserve the chance to grow and industrialize using fossil fuels, just as developed countries did over the past couple of centuries. Keeping this in mind, who do you believe should realistically bear the cost of transitioning developing countries from dirty fuels to clean energy? Should the rich countries subsidize the poor countries?
1: Well, I think it's the wrong question. If okay. clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy, why would you choose dirty energy? It's like saying, who's gonna bear the cost of sending their copper telephone wire to every, every house in the developing country? You don't need to use a cell phone. Just skip that whole step. So to argue that you have to go through dirty stages of development to get to clean stages of development is to misapprehend the economics, the technology, the increasing practices, the trends, and also the local environmental costs. Right now, the world spends about trillion a year on energy and another $6 trillion on the infrastructure that sets future energy patterns. Those monies are being spent and they're being spent in India just as they're being spent in Indiana. If those dollars, those existing cash flows land on clean choices, we end up with a reasonable climate future. If those existing cash flows land on dirty energy choices, we end up with climate catastrophe. So all that said, I'm strongly in favor of wealthy nations contributing to accelerate the clean energy transition in developing countries. But if this is made out to be a welfare system, uh, it won't happen. It has to be an economic opportunity, not an economic drag.
0: Right. How do you make it seem or make it even an economic opportunity?
1: This is a great question. The first thing you have to do is look at energy, clean energy supplies from the developer's perspective. If you are the developer of solar fields, and let's say you're working in India, you need good low-cost panels. That's not a problem. You need good low-cost inverters. That's not a problem. You need siting. That can be a problem. You need an agreement from somebody, a bankable agreement from somebody that they're going to buy the power. That can be a very big problem. You need to have construction permits, another significant issue. And you need to make sure you can hook up to the transmission lines so that you can get your electricity to market. It's those conditions that determine whether there's rapid development of solar or not. So I would say as a a point of departure is, think about it from a developer's perspective. If you wanna put in a gigawatt of solar, that's a lot of solar, what are all, all the conditions you have to meet and how easy or how hard it is to meet them. Governments can make it easier or hard, and if they make it easy, clean energy will come roaring in. If they make it hard, dribs and drabs.
0: Right, so looking at the geopolitical state of affairs currently, are governments of developing countries, and I suppose developed countries as well because they're part of it, are they making it easy?
1: Mixed grade, China makes it pretty easy. <laughs> So uh, some of the island nations are working very aggressively on this, their cost of energy is incredibly high because they use diesel fuel to create electricity, which is both horrendously ugly and dirty, but also horrendously expensive. I'm hoping, and this is a lot of our work, that developing countries uh, and developed countries, but let's stick with your question, developing countries will begin to understand that there's a suite of policies that can really accelerate the transition and begin to adopt them. It's not, again, it's not charity. It's not sacrifice. It's, cre- it's opening the doors up to the right kinds of opportunities.
0: Got it. Thank you. So looking ahead, what new energy sources are on the horizon, if there are any? And are they superior to existing clean energy sources?
1: It's a great question. I'm a big fan of offshore wind. When you put wind turbines in the ocean, they have almost double the energy of an onshore wind. And you don't have as many sighting problems because they're away from people. You can put them quite a distance away so they can't be seen from the beach, as it were. You can make them as big as you want because you don't have to transport the blades uh, on roads. You just put them on a big ship and put them up. Offshore wind has dropped in price by almost half in the last five years. And the wind runs almost twice as often there. So they're very uh, important for stabilizing variable grids. So offshore wind is a big deal. Finally, and this is important, they've learned how to float these things. So you can put them in where the ocean is very deep, like off the coast of California. That's one item. Another one that has essentially infinite potential, if we can solve one problem, is geothermal. Uh, There's an infinity of hot rock, not very far under the Earth's crust, but it's hard to drill through because it often goes through very strong stones, very strong rocks. So there's a lot of work being done on new drills, including laser drills that can unleash Mm -hmm. that energy source. So those are two that I'm very excited about.
0: Interesting. So do you think that the most promising clean energy source differs if you're looking at developing economies versus developed economies?
1: Well, if you have an economy where a lot of people are not hooked up to the grid, the difference is very large. So if you can go sort of town by town and put in regional solar, great mini grids, you can save the huge cost and time burden of building transmission lines everywhere. And batteries are becoming much, much cheaper now as our solar systems. So that becomes a very viable alternative for, you know, close to a billion people that don't have access to conventional electricity. Second, there's this wonderful phrase called stranded costs. Stranded costs is when you invest a huge amount of capital into a technology and then you discover it's no good or you don't need it or you can't use it or it's not economical. Most fossil infrastructure around the world is or will soon be a stranded cost and developing countries don't need to have that liability if they make smart choices now. They can avoid going into debt for stuff that is not going to last the full economic life. And that saves a huge amount of money. It still takes courage and it takes capital to build a low carbon grid, no question. Uh, But it's a whole lot easier if you sort of leapfrog over the dirty technologies and go straight to the clean.
0: Thank you. So to conclude, clearly as fossil fuels phase out, there will be a great deal of economic opportunity around next generation fuels. What countries are at the forefront of clean energy innovation?
1: So the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, have made amazing clean energy commitments. These are small countries, 5 to 10 million people each. But they have pioneered wind energy. Uh, They've done a lot of work on industrial work. They've created zero carbon steel. They have the highest fraction of electric vehicles in the world. They are sort of, I don't know, beacons of hope, you might say. Now, because they're not big economies and because they're wealthy economies, a lot of people say, well, that can't be done everywhere. It can't be done in an advanced economy or a big economy. I would say the next two jurisdictions in line are Germany and California. So you have a country and a state. Germany is committing to 65% reductions in CO2 emissions by 2030 compared to 1990. And California is the only large jurisdiction with a hard, baked into law and regulation, pathway to zero by 2050. So they're doing really serious work and a lot of other states and countries will emulate them. I would put those as front runners.
0: Got it. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: I really appreciate the, con- the chance for the conversation.
0: Thank you to everyone who listened today to Capital Connections. And I hope you walk away with a more comprehensive understanding of COP26, energy, and the future of the world. Thank you. And I hope to see you on the next episode.